Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Science Radio. I'm your host, Jesse, and today it's just me. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I will be your one and only host, which could be the first time in the history of Science Radio that this has ever happened. Why am I alone today? It's because this episode, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story about my gambling addiction, how I overcame it, and how it's way more common than you might think. In order to understand where I'm coming from, we first have to go back to the 1990s to a little company called Blizzard Entertainment. Now, Blizzard, if you don't know, is a massive company that produces video games, the Warcraft series, Overwatch, Diablo, those kinds of games. And in the 1990s, they found mainstream success with their real-time strategy games, Warcraft, Warcraft 2, and in the early 2000s, Warcraft 3. Yes, me lord. I loved Warcraft 3. I loved the lore. I loved real-time strategy games at the time. I was a massive Age of Empires fan as a kid. I played StarCraft, but Warcraft 3 was special. It was a traditional fantasy world. You have elves and dwarves, orcs and goblins, heroic humans, dragons, all the sort of stuff that as a kid into the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, this was great stuff. In particular, Warcraft 3 had a fantastic expansion called The Frozen Throne. There was an epic story of uh, a noble prince turning rogue and becoming an evil villain, heroes on two sides of uh, conflict that was sort of morally grey, and begging the question, who do you root for? Do you root for the Alliance or for the Horde? For me, it was the Horde. Then, jumping off the success of the Warcraft series, Blizzard launched in 2004 World of Warcraft. And this is the game that most people know. It's a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. It's huge. It's probably the most successful MMO that's ever been created. And even though it is coming up to 20 years old, they are still releasing content for it. Um, even the time of recording this podcast, only a few days ago, a new expansion was announced. The bajillionth expansion, it kind of feels like. By 2008, the game owned more than 60% of the MMO market. And to this day, they've estimated to have grossed uh, almost $10 billion in revenue. That's billion with a B. It is a huge game. And one of the big reasons why World of Warcraft was so popular was because of its mass appeal. The generic fantasy world appealed to a lot of people and included a lot of tropes that people could identify with. If you wanted to be a, a night elf, you could be a night elf. If you wanted to be a troll or an orc, if you wanted to be a dwarf, if you wanted to align yourself with a particular faction, there was a flavor for you. Now, I never actually played World of Warcraft. MMOs were never really my thing. I played a lot of RuneScape as a kid, 
but I never took the jump to EverQuest, to Guild Wars, or to World of Warcraft. However, about 10 years after the release of World of Warcraft, Blizzard identified another gap in the market, a genre that had been around for a long time, but had not seen the digital leap was collectible card games. Now, to understand the collectible card game, we have to go back to around the same time as Blizzard was gaining popularity with Warcraft 1 and Warcraft 2, and that was Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering was originally conceived as a filler game, something for people to do between Dungeons and Dragons sessions, something that was quick, that was immediate, and that was just silly, disposable fun. The first Magic set, and I'm using Magic as shorthand for Magic the Gathering, was released in the mid-90s, and it soon became incredibly popular. And, yes, like World of Warcraft, it's still going today. But collectible card games were, by their very definition, collectible and physical. You had to actually collect the cards physically. Now, to be sure, Magic the Gathering is not the only collectible card game. You have other childhood favourites like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Pokemon, and there are even other collectible card games based on popular intellectual property like The Lord of the Rings. But going back to that collectible feature, if you've ever been to a hobby gaming store, no doubt you've seen tables with gamers sitting at them with a binder, and in that binder are the cards. That's where most gamers keep their collection, or at least the most valuable aspects of their collection, because in a collectible card game, it's not just about collecting cards that go into a deck that you can use to play a game with a friend. Collectible card games took on almost a stock speculation aspect. What do I mean by that? Well, it goes without saying that there are just certain cards that are better than others. Some of them are costed better, some of them have more powerful effects, and the best have both of those aspects rolled into one. Far be it for me to declare the best magic card that ever existed, but one of the most iconic Magic the Gathering cards is the Black Lotus. Released in the first set and a couple of other subsequent sets, the Black Lotus costs absolutely nothing to play. It is a zero-cost artifact that when you use it adds three mana, aka resources, of any single colour of your choice to your mana pool. Now, that may not sound that impressive. Surely the best magic card that ever existed is some overpowered creature or some kind of other artefact that does heaps of damage to your opponent. But when it comes to a game like this, often... The best cards are the ones that allow you to most efficiently use your resources. And that's what the Black Lotus does. It allows you, for free, to play something that costs three mana. And when the Black Lotus was first introduced into the game, no doubt Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering, had no idea how iconic and how powerful it would eventually be. To give you some context, today, in mint conditions of alpha or beta Black Lotuses regularly go from a couple of thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. We're talking 20, 30, 
40 $50,000 for a piece of cardboard. So going back to 2014, Blizzard Entertainment saw the massive success of World of Warcraft. And they also noticed at the time the increased popularity of collectible card games like Magic the Gathering. And they identified that problem we already touched on the collectible part of the hobby. And they wondered, what if we could create a game that taps into the best of the collectible card game genre, but in the palm of your hand? And that's where we get Hearthstone, a digital collectible card game that allowed you to battle your friends and collect all sorts of crazy cards, but you could do it on your computer, on your tablet, or on your phone. As an added bonus, it was based on the Warcraft universe, and you could play cards from your favorite characters from the Warcraft games. You could play Alex Straza or Magni Bronzebeard or other names that may as well be made up to you. As somebody who was really into card games and somebody who was really into Warcraft but had kind of felt like I'd missed out on the cultural zeitgeist that was World of Warcraft, I thought, you know what, I think this game is for me. Now, you might be wondering what the economy of a game like Hearthstone is. And in order to explain that, we have to understand what the economy of a traditional card game looks like. A traditional card game like Magic the Gathering has become complicated in the last few years. But in order to simplify it, I'll break it down into a couple of small parts. The most fundamental part of a card game are the cards themselves. You can buy individual cards from a local game store or online from any number of websites, <laughs> eBay, Amazon, or the specialized sites like Channel Fireball or Star City Games. What would be called trash commons might go for 10 cents, 50 cents. Your trash rares might go for a dollar. $2, maybe even less. Your more interesting cards might go for five bucks, 10 bucks. And the key components of a good deck might cost you $10, $20, $30, going into the hundreds. In order to play a competitive deck in the most competitive formats, it is fairly commonplace to have to shell out a couple of hundreds or even thousands of dollars just to build your deck. In fact, it's commonplace to shell out a few hundred or a few thousand dollars in order to accommodate just your lands. Now, you probably don't know what I mean by that. Your typical Magic the Gathering deck is constructed of two parts. The cards that you play that do effects that deal damage to your opponents and that ultimately help you win the game. And the fuel that helps you to play those things. Those are called lands. Now, they're called lands because most often they are represented by islands, forests, mountains, plains. They're your general lands and they represent a color. You can have lands that only generate one particular color. You can have lands that generate multiple. You can have lands that fetch other lands, thinning your deck, making it more statistically likely that you'll draw the cards that you want to draw. Lands are the backbone of your deck and they're incredibly valuable. What Hearthstone did 
was eradicate lands from their entire economy. In a Magic the Gathering deck, your deck consists of 60 cards. In Hearthstone, they cut it in half to 30. You don't need those extra cards when you get one crystal every single turn. It's genius. You get one crystal every single turn and you get to draw the cards that you want. It's so good. The other thing that traditional card games have that you don't have in Hearthstone is trading. Let's say I have a card that's great for you, but is useless to me. I could trade it to you for a card that you don't want, but that I do. In Hearthstone, you can't trade cards. Once you've unlocked it, it's in your account forever, unless you delete it. What this means is that Blizzard was able to tightly control every aspect of the economy of Hearthstone. In traditional card games, a lot of the money was lost from the main company, Wizards of the Coast, because they had to go through distribution middlemen. Local game stores, online sellers, they sold the product to the store, then the store sells that product to players. Once in the hands of players, those items could then further be traded or sold to each other. Wizards of the Coast doesn't get any of that. But Hearthstone solved that problem. Not only is it more convenient, it's far easier to purchase items in Hearthstone than it is in a traditional card game. In a traditional card game, you'd you'd either have to go to a store yourself or order it online, wait for it to turn up at your door, then open the pack. With a digital card game, as soon as the game has your credit card details, all you need to do is hit that buy, buy, buy button, and instantly you'll have that card in your collection. Except you kind of didn't. That's because even though Hearthstone did away with the archaic parts of the collection system that's a problem for traditional card games, they kept the randomization aspect. This is where my gambling addiction began. Say, make money, money, make money, money, money. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Uh-oh. Money makes the world go round. I'm the talk around town. Remy gave me the sound. I need on the you see, the part that I haven't explained yet is that in traditional card games, you can buy individual cards, but you can also buy packs. You can buy cards in booster packs. You can buy booster boxes. You can buy intro packs. You can buy jumpstart packs. This is all pretty much Magic the Gathering. But the main point is the game incentivizes you rather than spending money on a known quantity, that is, looking at the card that you want, seeing how much it is, and just purchasing it, what they really want you to do is to purchase an unknown pack and maybe you'll get lucky. Now, there's every likelihood that in that pack will be a bunch of cards worth nothing. Now, let's say the pack costs $10. There's every likelihood that in that pack could be a bunch of cards worth 10 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, two dollars. But there's also another chance that there could be an amazing card, that one card that you know is becoming incredibly popular, whose price is rising and rising and rising, who used to be worth $10 but now is worth $50. There's a great chance, you think, 
that maybe the pack that you buy containing an unknown set of cards could contain that one card that could make it all worth it. You can see how buying booster packs is basically gambling. It's a slot machine. You're putting money in, not knowing what the result is, and then hungrily devouring that pack, hoping that you'll win big. Now, I've been to pubs. I've been to clubs. I've seen poker machines. They've never appealed to me. But for some reason, when it came to collectible card games, I loved it. And when it came to Hearthstone, I loved it even more. I could just press a button and instantly I knew that I was going to get a little dopamine hit of seeing that card pack open, of opening those cards and seeing what could be in them, wondering maybe I'll get that one card that I need to make my deck awesome. And I don't need to tell you because you already know that more often than not, the card that I wanted was not in that card pack. And even when I bought a bunch of boosters all together and I opened them all together in one big hit to try and get the most massive dopamine boost ever, the joy that I got from opening whatever cards that I was looking for was always overshadowed by the disappointment that I didn't get more. And this is where the cycle began. I played Hearthstone for about four or five years. I had a close friend who was my Hearthstone buddy. We both really loved the game. He was a World of Warcraft fan back in the day, and for him it was about reconnecting with old memories, and he liked card games as well. The difference between him and I was that he was a completely free-to-play player, and a free-to-play player is somebody who will play a game that has microtransactions like Hearthstone, but will choose to not spend any real-world money on the game. A lot of the time, this is seen as a purist thing. Like, if the game offers you an experience boost and it only costs $2, but it'll save you three hours of work, a free-to-play player will go, you know what, I'm going to spend the three hours instead of paying the $2. It's like a principle. I did not have any such principles. And in the time that I played Hearthstone, I sunk hundreds, but probably thousands of dollars into the game. I'd just been married. I was starting a new job. I'd moved to a new country and life was stressful. And Hearthstone was my downtime. It was the way that I could relax. It was the way that I could connect with my friend who lived a couple of hours away from me. And every time a new expansion was announced, we'd both excitedly go through the live streams and the videos and talk about all the new card releases and how awesome they'd be and all the new mechanics. But over time, the game became much more like a chore than a game. It became more like a job because in order to save for the new expansion, I'd have to grind in-game gold constantly. And inevitably, of the gold that I'd saved in between expansions wasn't enough to buy all the cards that I'd wanted. And so I'd end up spending more money. Then I'd play the expansion for a few weeks and have lots of fun with all the brand new cards, figuring out the new metagame, seeing how things were changing. And then inevitably, the meta would settle down 
all the best decks, all the best strategies would be discovered. The meta would be considered quote unquote solved. And then the game would become boring again. And my time was more taken up with saving gold for the next expansion, buying whatever little in-between bits that I could in the meantime. It wasn't fun. It was a slog. And so a couple of years into playing this game, my friend and I had a discussion. In fact, it was a two-way intervention. And we both realized that we'd come to the same place independently, that this game that we had started playing together, that we'd both enjoyed, was becoming toxic to both of us in different ways. And together we decided that we would quit. Hearthstone is just one example of the new landscape of gaming. Now, maybe you're not a gamer, in which case I commend you for getting through this very long and indulgent exposition. But maybe you have a kid who's a gamer. Maybe you've got a nephew or a husband or a boyfriend or an uncle in your life and they're a gamer and you just don't get it. As I said, Hearthstone is just one example of the new gaming landscape. What is that landscape, you might wonder? Well, allow me to introduce you to a term known as the gacha game. Konnichiwa. If you've ever been to Japan, you'll have seen a vending machine, maybe outside a shopping center or another kind of grocery retailer. Heck, we even have them here in Australia but they're very different in Japan. The term for it is gashapon or gachapon, and they became incredibly popular in Japan for a number of reasons. One of them is that the gacha machine produced much higher quality toys than their American counterparts. The way that they work is you put in a coin or a token of some kind that you've purchased And you'll get a random item. You might get a low quality little bauble or you might get something really, really incredible, something that's worth far more than the money that you put into the machine. And if you're thinking that just sounds like a slot machine, well, yeah, that's basically what it is. The Japanese company Bandai started distributing these machines around Japan in the 1960s. And it's estimated that Bandai themselves have made between $3 and $17 billion in revenue sales since 1977 alone. That's billion with a B, once again. A gacha game is a game based on this principle. The game presents you with a choice. Put in money, get an unknown reward that could be equal to or greater than the amount of cash inserted in the machine. Except, of course, the machine is statistically calibrated to, on average, give you far less value than the money that you put in. As they say, the house always wins. The interesting part is that gacha games today are much more clever at hiding what they truly are. If you've been around gamer circles before or you've just seen an ad on your mobile device, no doubt you'll have heard of games like Raid Shadow Legends. Raid Shadow Legends. AFK Arena. AFK Arena. Play now for free. Or Genshin Impact. Feel the impact. 
most of these games look like MMOs or RPGs, but really what they are, are gacha games. They are games with layers upon layers upon layers of interlocking systems, all designed to obscure the true value of whatever item they are offering in order for you to never quite know whether you are getting a good deal or not. As an example, let's say the game has a currency that we'll call gold. In order to buy a great piece of armor, it might cost you 100 gold. But then the game might say, instead of getting this armor, you could get something even better for 10, let's call them feathers. Except feathers are a currency that requires you to spend money. Now, let's say that you can buy seven feathers for $6 or 20 feathers for $15. Now, let's say that you can buy nine feathers for $12 or 20 feathers for $20. Now, remember I said that the armor piece costs 10 feathers. Buying nine feathers for $12 isn't going to cut it. And so your brain tells you not only is buying 20 feathers more efficient, the feather to dollar ratio is far better, but also I could spend the leftover feathers that I have on something else. And so you spend $20 on 20 feathers, which is a ridiculous currency, I know, and you buy that armor piece. What I've just described is a fairly typical, if incredibly mundane, aspect of the gacha gaming system. The idea is to include as many currencies as possible, as many challenges as possible, as many different stats as possible. Get lots of percentages, get lots of different items, include a prestige system, include multi-tiered dungeon systems, make it social, and you've got yourself a gacha game. Now, you might be thinking, who cares? So what if a company wants to make money and they put systems in their game in order to do that? We live in a free market capitalist society. They should be allowed to do that. And you're right. I'm not against games making money. However, there's something sinister in all of this. Plarium, which is the dev team behind Raid Shadow Legends, in 2017 was acquired by an Australian company, a company named Aristocrat. You've probably never heard of Aristocrat, but they were willing to pay 500 million US dollars to purchase Plarium and purchase Raid Shadow Legends and any other game that Plarium might develop in the future. Why would Aristocrat purchase a game development company? Well, it's because Aristocrat's core business is making gaming experiences for casinos. And if you know anything about Australian gambling culture, which I have written an article in the Science of the Times magazine about, you'll know that gambling is a big business here and it's incredibly profitable. Aristocrat is just one of many companies around the world who are investing in gambling gaming experiences from the convenience of your phone. There are laws in countries all around the world prohibiting gambling companies from allowing children to gamble on their systems. There are no such laws, at least laws that are enforceable effectively to prevent those same companies from doing it on mobile games. Now, 
Does that mean that every game is as nefarious as Raid Shadow Legends and Raid Shadow Legends is nefarious? No. But this is becoming the world that we are living in. My experience in Hearthstone was juvenile in comparison to the experiences of whales, aka people who spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars or more on a single game. My experience was far more lighthearted and less detrimental than the experience of people hopelessly addicted to these gaming loops. One of the things that I experienced, which many other people experience, is the sunk cost fallacy. The further you're in, the more time you'll spend in the system and the more money you'll spend on the system. You figured, I've come this far, I may as well keep going. And this is what makes a lot of these games so nefarious. Now, I'm not some high-minded, anti-gaming Puritan. I still play games. I enjoy games. Not as much as I used to. I'm getting a bit older. I don't have as much time anymore. But I still like games. And I still think that games are a legitimate form of art and a legitimate form of entertainment. I don't like every game. I think there are certain games you shouldn't play. But on the whole, I am pro-game. I am also anti gambling. I believe that gambling is on the whole incredibly detrimental to society and predates on the weakest parts of our psyche. Gambling fundamentally is about manipulating the human brain into thinking that they can get something that is too good to be true. This is the experience that every gambler goes through. If I only put one more dollar into the machine, I could make it big. If I only put one more dollar into this gacha gaming system, I will get the thing that I have been dreaming of. It is a vicious cycle. And the only winner in this cycle are the companies that rake in millions and millions of dollars every year from ordinary people who are being manipulated. Let my experience be a warning to you. Don't allow yourself to fall into these traps. Don't allow your kids to fall into these traps. If you have a partner or a family member who you think is struggling with this, I'd encourage you to go to the Signs of the Times website and check out my article because, yes, this is shameless self-promotion, but I do have some practical questions that you can have with a person in your life who you think might be struggling with this very issue. At the end of the day, I still enjoy gaming. I believe that gacha games, loot boxes, and slot machines disguised as game mechanics ultimately hurt the genre, hurt the people who play it, and hurt the art that can be created when playing a game. As a Christian, I am morally opposed to the way that it manipulates people for profit. Check out the article. If you need to talk to anybody, message us on our social media platforms and we can have a conversation, you and me. Other than that, thank you very, very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you soon. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au.
This is an Adventist Media Podcast.